Okay. Just last month, we were all wishing each other a happy new year. So how's 2024 treating you so far? Did you make a new year's resolution and are you keeping up with it? Are you focused on the bad news in the church and the fake news in the world? Or are you concentrating instead on the good news of Jesus Christ? That'd be a good resolution. Welcome to No Nonsense Catholic. I'm your host, Matthew Arnold for Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Uh, for many Catholics, myself included, 2024 began under the cloud of controversy and scandal generated by fiducious supplicants. The document on blessing couples in irregular unions, which for the first time included homosexual relationships under the category of merely irregular unions. This, coupled with the consequent revelations of Cardinal Fernandez, explicitly and frankly salacious writings on the alleged sexual nature of Christian mysticism. Now, I made my very first New Year's resolution in the year of our Lord 2022 when I resolved to stop being nice, uh, in the sense that being nice means avoiding conflict to the point of not speaking up for the truth. And so I was drawn into commenting on this controversy, uh, although I was in good company, uh, considering the criticism from various bishops and even uh, for the first time ever, the resolution of entire national bishops' conferences to deny or defy, rather, an instruction from the Holy See. And speaking of controversy, the Vatican, and New Year's resolutions, it was also in 2022 that Pope Francis called for a special preparation for the upcoming Jubilee year 2025, which we'll talk about later. And this all came together for me in an article published uh, by our Sunday visitor back in 2022 by Father Patrick Briscoe, which asked the question, is it too late to get Vatican II right? And I talked about it at the time. Uh, sadly, two years down the road, I, I wanted to go back to that question with another edition of our recurring segment, Will the Real Vatican II Please Stand Up? You know, because Pope Francis called for looking uh, back at the four constitutions of Vatican II as a way of preparing for the Jubilee year. Now, as you probably know, I've long held the opinion that you don't have to assist exclusively at the traditional Mass to be a traditional Catholic. On the contrary, if you can say the act of faith and really mean it, you are a traditional Catholic. But because traditional Catholic has become such a loaded term, I adopted the expression no-nonsense Catholic to affirm that you can be a good and faithful Catholic regardless of which form of the Roman rite you attend. Personally, I believe that particular grudge match needs to come to an end. And would, I suspect, if only Redemptionis Sacramentum, the 2001 Vatican document demanding an end to liturgical abuses of the Novus Ordo, were ever finally implemented. The laws, as they say, are on the books. They just need to be enforced. So what, is, what does this have to do with Vatican II? Well, Pope Benedict XVI of Holy Memory pointed out that some people have interpreted the Second Vatican Council as a clean break with the tradition of the Church, a veritable new start from zero. He called this interpretation of Vatican II the hermeneutic of rupture. The point being that whether you're a progressive Catholic who thinks a new start from zero is the best thing ever, or if you are a traditionalist who thinks that any break with tradition is the worst thing ever, you're technically wrong either way. Because, listen, because Vatican II should not be considered a break with tradition at all, but rather a part of it. Therefore, one should adopt, uh, adopt an hermeneutic of continuity, which means that you must interpret the council in continuity with the 2,000 years of tradition which preceded it, 
and not reinterpret 2,000 years of tradition in light of Vatican II. Now, there are those on, on both sides who misrepresent the hermeneutic of continuity. Uh, you know, to mean that the entire post-conciliar project, altar girls, communion in the hand, blessing homosexual couples, you know, and so on, must all somehow be considered traditional, you know, because continuity. But on the contrary, the hermeneutic of continuity is a litmus test to expose the hermeneutic of rupture. For example, Redemptionis Sacramentum is a model of the hermeneutic of continuity as it seeks to correct the rupture of liturgical abuses wrongly believed to be justified by Vatican II. Uh, perhaps the best example of the distinction between continuity and rupture is Benedict XVI's Samorum Pontificum, which admitted that every Roman Catholic priest has the right to celebrate the traditional Latin Mass in continuity with the tradition of the Church, versus Pope Francis's Traditionis Custodis forbidding the same in an act of rupture not just with centuries of tradition, but even the magisterium of his immediate predecessor. That, by the way, is a textbook contradiction. They can't both be right. And Father Shannon Collins, a good friend of St. Joseph Communications and Catholic Resource Center for many years, was recently canceled by the Bishop of Covington, Kentucky, for allegedly expressing the opinion that the Novus Ordo is inferior to the traditional Latin Mass. And what's more, he allegedly did this from the pulpit. Now, if that's true, my question is, if a priest of the same diocese had put forward his opinion that the new Mass is superior to the traditional Latin Mass, would he have been canceled? That the Novus Ordo Mise is inferior to the traditional Latin Mass, or vice versa, is a matter of opinion. But that the Novus Ordo is in many ways a disruption of centuries of Catholic liturgical practice, especially as it's typically celebrated, or I should say abused, well, that's simply a fact. And that's why in 2001, the Congregation for the Doctrine uh, of Worship, or Congregation for Divine Worship, rather, insisted that liturgical abuse of the Novus Ordo come to an end. Unfortunately, it did not. The document was largely ignored. Now, is liturgical abuse or the failure to correct it the fault of Vatican II? Is it tantamount to sacrilege to think that it is? And more importantly, is it too late to fix it? Well, in 2022, which, by the way, was the 60th anniversary of Vatican II, Father Patrick Briscoe said that to understand the Council, we should go back to the beginning. So, 62 years ago, Pope John XXIII opened the Council for this stated purpose, and I quote, that the sacred heritage of Christian truth be safeguarded and expounded with greater efficacy. To this end, he said, what is needed and what everybody imbued with a truly Christian, Catholic, and apostolic spirit craves today is that this doctrine shall be more widely known, more deeply understood, and more penetrating in its effects on men's moral lives. So the purpose of Vatican II was decidedly not to break the tradition. On the contrary, Pope St. John insisted that it is, quote, absolutely vital that the Church shall never for an instant lose sight of that sacred patrimony of truth inherited from the Fathers, unquote. He saw the Council as an opportunity of updating the way in which the sacred, perennial, and unchanging truths of the faith are set forth in Church teaching in order to help modern man grow in holiness. But we all know what happened. Now, some maintain that the council was hijacked and its purpose subverted 
Others, like Benedict XVI, believe the documents of Vatican II are sound. Which documents, lest we forget, represent the actual teaching of the Council? However, he says, the application of that teaching by many was at best ill-considered and at worst heretical. This is the hermeneutic of continuity argument that tries to remain faithful to the substance of conciliar teaching while offering an explanation for the post-conciliar crisis, including the quite uncalled-for changes to the liturgy, religious life, and, and many other aspects of the church. In other words, the fruit of the hermeneutic of rupture. And according to Father Briscoe, some in the hermeneutic of rupture camp argue that the reason the destabilization of the post-conciliar period has continued to our day is that the really real spirit of Vatican II was never really adopted, and therefore what the Church needs are even more radical changes, like ending clerical celibacy and admitting women to holy orders and, and you know, redefining our God-given human sexuality and, and, and on and on. This is the current conclusion of the synodal way of places like Germany and Belgium. And also, Father Briscoe warned that to conclude that the way things are now in the Church, he says, for good or for ill, is because of Vatican II, is reductionist. After all, correlation, he says, does not prove causality, which is true. Although I would hasten to point out that virtually every disastrous policy adopted since Vatican II has been undertaken precisely by appealing to the Council, and whether the Council truly called for it or not. And there's the rub. Catholics of all kinds simply do not know what the Council actually taught. Obviously, it'd be easier to judge appeals to obey the spirit of the Council if more of us were familiar with the letter of the Council in the first place. Now, Father Briscoe says uh, um, that whatever your opinion, he made uh, what I consider the, the salient point. You know, uh, John the Twenty Third obviously thought the council was necessary, but precisely so the deposit of faith would be guarded more effectively, explained more clearly, and lived more faithfully. So Father Briscoe says, "Quote: Every faithful Catholic interested in unpacking Vatican II should read the documents." And I agree. This is the only starting point for the Church to finally come to terms with Vatican II and everything that's happened since. And that's no nonsense. All right, when we come back, we're going to discover that it was also the stated opinion of none other than Pope Francis. We're also going to talk about uh, the, the preparation that the Pope called for for the upcoming Jubilee year 2025 and ask the, answer the question, are Catholics cannibals? All that's coming up later in the program. Before we close out the first segment, though, I wanted to mention uh, something I saw on Facebook this morning. I think Terry Barber has probably already brought it to, to your attention, but if you're not aware, someone has um, opened a fake Facebook account pretending to be Bishop Strickland and soliciting funds for, for his support, all right? And Bishop Strickland himself has made it very clear via his Twitter account that number one, not only is that not him, but he doesn't even have a, a Facebook account at all. So please, if you see um, a, an appeal on Facebook, supposedly from uh, Bishop Strickland, soliciting funds, please don't be taken in. And remember, if you're the one behind this, Dante puts uh, the, the swindlers in the eighth circle of hell. All right. <laughs> That's no nonsense. Back after this.
Welcome back to No Nonsense Catholic. Since the Middle Ages, every 25 years since 1470, the Church has celebrated a holy year, sometimes called a jubilee year, meant to be a time of pilgrimage, prayer, repentance, and practicing the spiritual and corporal works of mercy. Now, the last holy year was the great jubilee year, 2000. The next will be 2025. And Pope Francis has chosen as the theme for the upcoming holy year, Pilgrims of Hope. And they have a logo and everything. Now, I bring this up because of what the Pope called for back in 2022, which was for Catholics in 2023, last year, to focus on the four constitutions issued by Vatican II. And among the 16 documents of Vatican II, four were constitutions, Sacrosanctum Concilium, Constitution on the Sacred Liturgy, Dei Verbum, the Dogmatic Constitution on Divine Revelation, Lumen Gentium, the Dogmatic Constitution on the Church, and Gaudium et Spes, the Pastoral Constitution on the Church in the Modern World. Now, when you read the documents, you'll discover that the Constitution on the Liturgy does not call for a new order of the Mass or the abandonment of Latin. The Constitution on the Word of God does not call for reinterpreting the Bible. And the fact that there are two constitutions on the Church, one dogmatic and one pastoral, does not, in fact, promote a separation of the pastoral from the dogmatic. However, you will find all those attitudes on full display in the Church today, precisely as if the documents did, in fact, call for such novelties. And I dare say that no cleric, be he priest or bishop, is in any danger of being cancelled should he express the opinion that Vatican II did, in fact, call for them. Now, I'll give you an example of what I'm talking about. <clears throat> I was a professional musician for the first 10 years of my adult life. So when I converted to Catholicism, I was naturally conscripted into the music ministry. When our pastor retired, the new administration hired a full-time liturgist to tell us how to pray and sing in our own church. And she was herself a trained musician and wanted all the music ministers to be on the same page regarding what the church expected from us music-wise. So she held a meeting to go over the post-conciliar document Musicum Sacrum, the instruction on music in the liturgy promulgated in 1967. Now, what's interesting is that she had received her formation as a liturgist from a program of the Diocese of Los Angeles held at a Catholic university, which shall remain nameless, but its initials are LMU. And for our meeting, she provided us each with an official copy of Musicum Sacrum in booklet form. This is the you know days before the internet. <clears throat> but when she led the class, she did not read from the provided booklet, but instead read passages from her formation program stuff. And as I read along, I realized that the official English translation of the document was significantly different from the translation in her, in her diocesan materials. Now, the situation was this. She herself had never read Musicum Sacrum, but only excerpts from the document. And those excerpts in an unofficial translation accompanied by some rather biased commentary. Which is to say, she didn't really know the contents of the document at all, but only what the liturgical, uh, liturgical progressives wanted her to believe the document said. And one of the first things that I noticed is that the word renew figured prominently in the excerpts that she read to us. But in the official translation, the word was more often rendered restore. I see that's a, that's a significant difference. To restore means to return, to, to reinstate, to reestablish, etc. And while renew can mean to restore, it can also mean to renovate or reform or start over. Now, which meaning do you suppose was preferred by the materials from the diocese? So <clears throat> back in October of 22, as something of a pilgrim of hope myself, and a no-nonsense one at that, 
I expressed my opinion that studying the four constitutions of Vatican II would be a great opportunity for Catholic commentators to discover and to compare what's really called for in those documents with what's actually happened in the church over the last six decades. And I wondered if that were to happen, and it's not too late, I wondered if the Pope might have cause to ponder the old saying, be careful what you wish for, because you just might get it. It was our Lord himself who gave us the criterion for judging such matters in Matthew 7, 15 through 20. He said, be on guard against false prophets who come to you disguised in sheep's clothing, but who inwardly are ravenous wolves. By their fruits, you will know them. Does one pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? In the same way, every good tree bears good fruit, but a rotten tree produces bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, by their fruits, you will know them. Now, if the documents of Vatican II represent a good tree, then how to explain the bad fruits of uh, decreased vocations and diminished mass attendance, the, the crisis in catechesis, the decline in faith and morals, etc., etc.? The question really becomes about the quality of teaching. The hermeneutic of continuity versus the hermeneutic of rupture. Our Lord told us there will always be those who seek to exploit religious sentiments and even the gospel itself to advance their own ideas or their own persons or their own little circle. And a wolf in sheep's clothing who would misrepresent the gospel is certainly not above misrepresenting the teaching of an ecumenical council. So Jesus offers a criterion to discern true disciples and teachers. Do their lives, attitudes, and, and comportment, their behavior, bear witness to the Spirit of Jesus? Now, just as trees are consistent in the kind of fruit they produce, good teachers exhibit good behavior and moral character as they themselves seek to live out the truths of Scripture. Now, don't get me wrong. This is not a call for Puritanism. I, I'm not calling for any witch hunts or trying to cancel all the teachers and pastors and, and others that we find to be less than perfect. Okay, hardly that. <laughs> There'd be nobody left. Every one of us is subject to sin, and we must show the same mercy to others that we expect for ourselves. But Jesus' example of bad trees certainly applies to teachers who deliberately teach false doctrine, who deliberately misrepresent or misapply scripture or tradition or the magisterium, and that includes Vatican II. When such a question arises, we must examine the teacher's motives the direction they're taking, the results that they're seeking. As Paula VI said in 1975, modern man listens more willingly to witnesses than to teachers. And if he does listen to teachers, it is because they are witnesses. In other words, by their fruits, you shall know them. And the fact is, uh, despite <clears throat> you know several articles and webinars and such last year, it doesn't seem that any meaningful rediscovery of the constitutions of Vatican II has taken place. There remains much misunderstanding and even misrepresentation of Vatican II. And if we ever hope to achieve the stated purpose of the Council, which was to more effectively present the gospel to the modern world without compromising the, quote, sacred patrimony of truth inherited from the fathers, unquote, we will not only have to do the hard work of studying the documents, but then seriously ask ourselves why it is that 60 years down the road, the very meaning of the council is still a matter of debate and why its stated purpose remains unfulfilled. And that's no nonsense. 
Meanwhile, here in the United States, we're in the midst of a Eucharistic revival called for by the uh, United States Conference of Catholic Bishop. And this is on my mind because I was reading about the Blessed Sacrament, or teaching rather, about the Blessed Sacrament last week at RCIA, and a question came up. Uh, one that does not come up every year, and I don't bring it up as it's rather obscure, but it remains an objection to the doctrine of the real presence even today. Namely, if the bread and wine truly become the body and blood of Christ, the way the church teaches, does that mean that Catholics are cannibals? Now, the answer, I, I, I've taken this largely uh, based on the reply in the book, The Catholic Response by Father Peter Stravinskis. And the first point that he makes is that the charge of cannibalism is not new. You know, Roman pagans accused the early Christians of cannibalism precisely because the disciples spoke of eating and drinking the body and blood of Christ. Now, before we go on, I'd like to point out something which that early accusation does, which is provide further evidence that belief in the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist is an ancient Christian doctrine, that the very first Christians understood Jesus to be speaking literally when he instituted the Eucharist at the Last Supper, just like the Catholic Church still does today. But of course, I, the charge of cannibalism is inappropriate, then as now, for three main reasons. First, cannibalism, simply put, is the eating of human flesh, dead flesh, either of a corpse, which is a dead body, or at least of a dead body part. Uh, second, the quantity of cannibalized flesh diminishes as it's being consumed. Third, however loathsome the thought, digesting such flesh results in physical nourishment. Now, the sacred banquet of the Holy Eucharist is not dead flesh, but a living sacrifice. It is the living Christ, the resurrected Christ, that we receive in Holy Communion. Second, the substance of the body of our Lord is not diminished by consuming the Eucharist. Jesus, in his glorified body, is seated at the right hand of the Father in heaven. And his body, blood, soul, and divinity, not present in a dead body, become sacramentally, and that does not mean symbolically, but truly present when the Eucharist is celebrated. Now, this is not a natural phenomenon, but a supernatural mystery. Third, the eating of his body and blood is not a matter of mere physical nourishment on the natural level. Although, I mean, there are certain saints that uh, subsisted miraculously on the Eucharist alone for years. But rather, the, the purpose of receiving Holy Communion is spiritual nourishment. Now, I think of the way that different catechisms put it, that the once and for all bloody sacrifice is made truly present, but in an unbloody manner. That it is the same sacrifice, only the manner in which it is offered is different or that the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Christ are substantially present in the Blessed Sacrament, but under the appearance, under the accidents of bread and wine. That is, the substance of the bread and wine is changed, but the accidents of bread and wine, what we encounter with our senses, remain. Like the Blessed Trinity, the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist is a supernatural mystery. So to sum up then, cannibals consume the flesh of a dead person in a way that both diminishes and profanes the corpse. But in the living sacrifice of the Eucharist, Jesus freely gives himself to us in, in such a way that he's both honored and increased. We consume his living body, blood, soul, and divinity mysteriously, miraculously present in the Eucharist in a way that does not diminish Christ's body at all. 
On the contrary, the Eucharist continues to multiply, as was foreshadowed in the miracle of the loaves and fishes, which then prompted Jesus' words in the synagogue in Capernaum the next day. Amen, amen, I say to you, you must eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, or you have no life in you. My body is food indeed, my blood is drink indeed. So rather than ask with the unbelieving disciples, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? Let us rather say with St. Peter, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. We believe that the Eucharist is the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus Christ because that's what he said it is. And we take him at his word. And that's no nonsense. All right. When we come back, going to talk about uh, one of the more controversial of the documents of Vatican II and ask the question, just how many Protestant denominations are there? That and more when we return with lots of no-nonsense Catholics right after this. Stay with us here on Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Okay, we were talking earlier about the four constitutions of Vatican II and how they may and should be interpreted in a way that is consistent with tradition. Well, one of the more controversial documents of Vatican II is not a constitution, but a decree, that on ecumenism, which calls us, uh, all Catholics, and you and me included, to work for the unity of all Christians. And it is the scandal of Christendom that the followers of Jesus are divided into many different rival camps. Now, every year at RCIA, I make a pie chart on the board. You know, I draw a circle and I put a vertical line down the middle. And on one half, I write Catholic to demonstrate that roughly half the Christians in the world are Catholics. And then I draw a horizontal line through the remaining half. And on one section, I write Orthodox because approximately a quarter of all the Christians in the world belong to one or another of the Orthodox churches. And then in the remaining section, I write Protestants and explain that this final 25% of the world's Christians are separated into 40,000 plus different evangelical Protestant fundamentalist denominations. Now that figure has been challenged by our separated brethren a number of times, although I continue to use it for reasons that will become apparent. Uh, so I was, I was very interested to see an article by Stephen Beale on the National Catholic Register website called Just How Many Protestant Denominations Are There? And especially as we mark the 500th anniversary of Luther's apostasy, I'm sorry, I mean Reformation, wasn't very ecumenical. Um, our, our Lord's Prayer for Unity among his followers, though, seems particularly significant. And Mr. Beale begins by stating the current objection that the commonly cited figure of tens of thousands of Protestant denominations has apparently been thoroughly debunked. But, he says, this only raises the question, how many Protestant denominations are there really? Now, first, he says, we should take a step back. Now, one figure, uh, that of 33,000 denominations and from a number of years ago, comes from uh, an authoritative source, the World Christian Encyclopedia. And one reason that number is considered too high by the critics is because it counts the same denomination as separate if they're in different countries. 
And with 238 countries at the time of that survey, around 20, 2001, you can see how this alone would inflate the number beyond the reality. However, Mr. Beale notes that the World Christian Encyclopedia's method seems to be shared by other institutions. For example, the Center for Global Christianity at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary, which estimates that there are currently 47,000 denominations. And this survey relies on the same methodology as the World Christian Encyclopedia, which it apparently deems credible. And he says, if you don't consider Gordon Conwell very authoritative, well, I, you know, it's well to remember they're a staunchly evangelical Protestant uh, institution and you utilized as a primary source by the Pew Research Center, which Mr. Beale says is pretty much the gold standard for social science research in the United States. And, and, and so it is. So that 47,000 number represents a conservative, evangelical, Protestant assessment of the number of Protestant denominations, right? They, they're obviously not Catholic and don't have an axe to grind. Now, Mr. Beale agrees, though, with the debunkers in this sense, that, quote, to say there are tens of thousands of Protestant denominations, while perhaps technically accurate according to some sociological research standards, really does seem like an exaggeration. So he looked into the, the 2015 Pew Research Center report on changing religious affiliation, which includes an index of major Protestant denominations. And he noted that such categories as Baptist, not further specified, you know, that's not much help when there are many different Baptist denominations. So having removed that which he found unhelpful, so non-responsive categories, non-denominational Protestants, and so on, he came up with 180 denominations or 180 categories for there are many, many tens of thousands of communities. But he said, this is really an at least figure because some entries are smaller denominations that have been grouped together. Consulting another source, the Association of Religion Data Archives, or ARDA, and performing the same whittling down process, he came up with a figure of 188 Protestant denominations. So he concludes that it seems we are safe in saying that, that there are at least nearly 200 major Protestant denominations or denominational categories in the United States. When viewed historically and globally, he says, we are safe in saying that there are hundreds and likely thousands of Protestant denominations, and that's still a scandal for Christians whom Christ desired would be one, Allah, his you know, prayer for unity in John 17. But what Mr. Beale uncovered along the way is that, in his words, the multiplicity of denominations only masks an even greater disunity. The truth is that denominational identity is on the decline today. A number of evangelical Protestants freely float among several closely related denominations spanning a spectrum of some Baptist, Congregationalist, and Presbyterian churches. You know, I know personally, for example, uh, you know, Protestants raised in one denomination that choose to attend a church of a different one tend not to think of themselves as converts. You know, so long as the church is Protestant and liberal, or Protestant and conservative, as the case may be, then it's all good. Uh, moreover, Mr. Beale says that increasingly, there is a widespread desire amongst our separated brethren to escape the boundaries of traditional denominations. Also, he says, we mustn't forget the megachurches, which, uh, which in the year 2000 numbered um, 1,650 but nearly 40% of them non-denominational. And he also draws our attention to the plethora of so-called Bible churches scattered throughout Protestant America. There are said to be thousands of these churches, he says, each potentially with its own doctrines, disciplines, and ecclesiastical structures. 
as much as they all proclaim to be following a, a single authority, the, the Bible. Which means that if there are technically only a couple of hundred actual Protestant categories or denominations in the United States, in the United States, yet there are many, many thousands of independent communities, which is what most people are referring to when they use the word denomination. Right? Hence, he says, all told, there are an estimated 35,496 independent or non-denominational churches, according to Arda. So what's Mr. Beale's ultimate conclusion? Well, in his words, it turns out that correcting an inaccurate fact has only clarified rather than changed the underlying truth. The scandal of Protestant disunity really is as bad as the official numbers suggest. Which is why I continue to use Gordon Conwell's estimate of over 40,000 denominations. And that's no nonsense. Okay, as is our custom here, I'd like to look now at Sunday's Gospel for the week. We kicked off this week with the fifth Sunday in Ordinary Time, the Gospel being taken from St. Mark chapter 1, verses 29 through 39. And by the way, uh, if you haven't been listening the last couple of weeks, we have uh, decided this year, rather than going through the uh, Extraordinary Form lectionary again, since it's... Um, the Gospel of Mark prominently in uh, this year's cycle of the Novus Ordo readings. And since um, we haven't really touched on that Gospel much uh, on this program, we were going to use the, the Novus Ordo lectionary for our uh, reflections this year. So, uh, Fifth Sunday in Ordinary Time, Mark 1, 29-39, reading from the New Catholic Bible Translation. Immediately on leaving the synagogue, he went with James and John into the house of Simon and Andrew. Simon's mother-in-law was lying in bed, sick with a fever, and they informed Jesus at once about her. Jesus approached her, grasped her by the hand, and helped her up. Then the fever left her, and she began to serve them. That evening, after sunset, they brought him all those who were sick or possessed by demons. The whole town was present, crowded around the door. He cured many who were afflicted with various diseases, and he drove out many demons, although he would not permit them to speak because they knew who he was. Early the next morning, long before dawn, he arose and went out off to a secluded place where he prayed. <clears throat> Simon and his companions set forth in search of him, and when they found him, they said, Everybody is looking for you. He replied, Let us move on to the neighboring towns so that I may proclaim the message there as well for this is the reason why I came. Then he traveled all throughout Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and driving out demons. Thus far the words of the Holy Gospel. Now, just to start off, each Gospel writer has a slightly different perspective as he wrote. Thus, uh, the comparable stories in the Gospels often highlight different details, such as the case of the cure of Peter's mother-in-law. In Matthew, Jesus touched the woman's hand which shows Matthew's Jewish audience that Jesus wasn't concerned with becoming ritually unclean by touching a sick woman. Mark shows the Gentiles of Rome, his audience, the, the compassion of Jesus when he says he helped her up. Luke emphasizes Jesus' divine power when he rebuked the fever and it left her. You know, see, for all of this, the accounts do not conflict. Rather, the various details complement each other, with each of the gospel writers choosing to emphasize different aspects of the story in order to highlight a, a certain characteristic of Jesus or a certain uh, message to their intended audience. And the scripture says, 
that people came to see Jesus in the evening after sunset. Now, if you go back to verse 21, we know that this was the Sabbath, Jewish day of rest, which lasted from sunset on Friday to sunset on Saturday. And the Jewish leaders had proclaimed that it was against the law to be healed on the Sabbath. So the people either didn't want to break this law or the Jewish law that prohibited traveling on the Sabbath. So the crowd had waited until sunset on Saturday when they were free to seek Jesus so that he could heal them. Now, it says that Jesus didn't want the demons to reveal who he was, and this for several reasons. First, by commanding the demons to remain silent, Jesus proves his authority and power over them. Secondly, Jesus wanted the people to believe he was the Messiah because of what he said and did, and not because of any you know, demonic testimony. And number three, he wanted to reveal his identity as Messiah according to God's timetable, not according to the devil's. See, Satan wanted the people to follow Jesus around just for what they could get out of him, not because he was the Son of God who could truly set them free from the guilt of sin and the power of death. And then we also notice that Jesus took time to pray. So often in the Gospels, we find that Jesus, he, he just wants to spend some time alone with the Father, he wants to go and communicate uh, with God the Father. And in this case, he gets up before dawn. Another time he goes into a mountain, he goes to a deserted place, etc., it's clear that even for Jesus, finding time to pray isn't always easy. But prayer is the vital link between us and God. And so, like Jesus, we must break away from others to talk one-on-one -on -one with God, even if we have to get up very early in the morning to do it. And that's no nonsense. All right, back with more when we uh, return after this break with lots more no-nonsense Catholics here on Virgin Most Powerful. Welcome back to No Nonsense Catholic. Continuing now <clears throat> with our look at uh, the gospel for the fifth Sunday of Ordinary Time. In this gospel, when the disciples tell Jesus, everyone is looking for you, his response is surprising. He says, okay, let's move on. Right? He says, because for this reason I have come. He wants to share the gospel with, with other people. But also, he wants to move on because the crowd's there were coming not to receive what he wanted to give to them, but to receive from him what they themselves wanted. And that's still a temptation for us today. Uh, they saw Jesus as a miracle worker, as, as a free physician. But our Lord didn't come to be a doctor for our mortal bodies, but to be the divine physician, the, the savior of our mortal souls. And so the question this gospel inspires in me is, is do I hunger for what he wants to give me? or for what I want him to give me? In other words, do I seek to align my priorities with Hill, with his, you know, with his will, or, or, or am I seeking to align his with mine? And Mark says that Jesus traveled all throughout Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and driving out demons. Uh, the, the Romans divided the land of Israel into three separate regions. So Judea in the south and Samaria and Galilee being the northernmost region. Uh, an area about 60 miles long and 30 wide. And Jesus performed much of his ministry in, in this area because Galilee was an ideal place for him to teach. As, for one thing, there was 250 towns there with many synagogues and a population that included both Jews and Gentiles. Now, this Sunday's gospel uh, is coupled with the epistle from St. Paul that shows us that God wants more from us than just to pray and help the poor and be nice. 
right? Be kind. He wants us to live the gospel and bring it to others. And this is made clear by St. Paul in 1 Corinthians 9, 16 through 19 and 22 through 23. Brethren, if I proclaim the gospel, that is no reason for me to boast. For the obligation to do so has been given to me, and woe to me if I fail to fulfill it. If I proclaimed the gospel of my own volition, I would deserve a reward. But if I do not do so voluntarily, I'm simply discharging the commission that has been given to me. What then is my reward? It is simply that in my preaching, I may offer the gospel free of charge and not make use of the rights that the gospel affords me. Although I am free to belong to no man and belong to no man, I've made myself a slave to all so as to win over as many as possible. To the weak I have become weak in order to win over the weak. I have become all things to all, so that by every possible means I might save some. I do all this for the sake of the gospel, so that I might share it with you. Now, St. Paul's called to preach the good news, and he says he couldn't stop preaching even if he wanted to. He was driven by the desire to do God's will and to use his gifts for God's glory. Now, even if you and I are not called to the ordained ministry or the religious life, we still have special gifts that God has given to us. The question is, are you and I motivated, like Paul, to honor God with our gifts? Now, Paul says that he has the freedom to do anything. Uh, you know, in the verses that follow this reading, he, he emphasizes a life of strict discipline. Because the Christian life involves both freedom and discipline. The goal of Paul's life was to glorify God and bring people to Christ, and thus he followed our Lord's example of staying free from any material or marital entanglement that might sidetrack him. And while he strictly disciplined himself to carry out his goal, but you know, for Paul, as for us, both freedom and discipline are important tools to be used in God's service. And then finally, in verses 22 and 23, St. Paul gives several important principles for evangelization. He says, to the weak, I have become weak in order to win over the weak. I have become all things to all, so that by every possible means I might save some. <clears throat> Pardon me. I do all this for the sake of the gospel that I might share it with you. Now, with those few words, Paul's saying several things uh, that, that can help us to share the gospel today. It's like I mentioned earlier in the program, Paul VI said that people are more willing to li listen to witnesses than they are to teachers, and if they listen to teachers, it's because they're witnesses. All right, so we need to witness to the gospel all the time. Uh, you know, there's a famous story uh, attributed to Francis of Assisi that he said, preach the gospel always, and if necessary, use words. Well, that's the thing. You have to preach by example, but when the situation calls for it, you must also preach with words. Now, Paul says, like I said, several things. First, he's saying that we need to find common ground with those we want to evangelize. And secondly, avoid being a know-it-all. To the weak, I have become weak, he says. Uh, to make others feel accepted and to be sensitive to their needs and concerns. I've become all things to all, he says. And then finally, to look for opportunities. Every possible means, he says. Look for opportunities to share Christ with others. Now, these principles are just as valid for evangelists in the 21st century as they were for St. Paul in the first. And that's no nonsense.
Paul right to to close today's program. Um, the the feast of Saint Thomas Aquinas was last week, and we didn't have time uh, for me to share this, so I'm going to do it this week. Have our, our little medieval mentality segment in honor of Thomas Aquinas, the famous Dominican priest, theologian, and the universal doctor of the Church. He is, of course, well known for his many theological and philosophical writings, most especially his magnum opus, the Summa Theologica. However, Thomas also experienced supernatural ecstasy. According to the Catholic Encyclopedia, supernatural ecstasy includes two elements. One, interior and invisible, in which the mind rivets its attention on a religious subject, and another, corporeal and visible, in which the activity of the senses is suspended reducing the effect of external sensations upon the subject and rendering him or her resistant to awakening. Now, in this latter case, think of the children of Fatima, or think of St. Bernadette. Perhaps you've seen the movie. There's a famous scene where she's in ecstasy, communing with Our Lady, and, and someone holds a burning candle to her palm, and she doesn't even notice. Okay? Now, supernatural ecstasy isn't a criterion for holiness. But Thomas Aquinas is only one saint among many to have such experiences, you know, including St. Francis of Assisi, Catherine of Siena, Teresa of Avila, St. Ludvina, and so on. But in one instance, Jesus spoke to Thomas Aquinas from a crucifix in the Priory Chapel. He completed one of his writings on the Eucharist and went to the chapel to pray. And his fellow Dominican brother, and this is interesting, Dominic Caserta, witnessed the account and explained what happened when St. Thomas was in ecstasy. He even saw Jesus speak to Thomas from the crucifix. He said that as Thomas lay prostrate on the floor, Jesus spoke these words from the crucifix. Thou hast written well of me, Thomas. What reward wilt thou have? Thomas then responded, Domini non nisite, or none other than thyself, Lord. And remember, you know, we're in our, our year of Eucharistic revival. It strikes me that he'd been writing about Jesus in the Eucharist, and apparently felt that receiving him in Holy Communion was reward enough for his efforts. And, you know, that's one way to look at it. In any case, when the experience was over, uh, Thomas Aquinas felt like he had no need to, to write anymore. And when he told his confessor that he was done writing, uh, he was taken aback, and his confessor encouraged him to continue his work. But St. Thomas responded, I can do no more. Such secrets have been revealed to me that all I have written now appears as so much straw. All that great work of philosophical and theological genius compared with that mystical experience of God, it was just nothing. You know, it reminds me of what St. Paul said after his vision of heaven in 1 Corinthians 2, 9, which, by the way, was in the epistle for the, this last Sunday's extraordinary form. And that is, he said, I has not seen Ear has not heard, nor has it entered into the heart of man, what God has prepared for those who love him. St. Thomas Aquinas went to his final reward within a year of this mystical experience. But he left us a prayer to Jesus in the Blessed Sacrament that's, I think, uh, just a perfect prayer for the Eucharistic revival. Sweet Jesus, body and blood most holy, be the delight and pleasure of my soul my strength and salvation in all temptations, my joy and peace in every trial, my light and guide in every word and deed, and my final protector in death. Amen. St. Thomas Aquinas, pray for us. All right, well, that is it for another edition 
of uh, No Nonsense Catholic here on Virgin Most Powerful Radio. As always, I want to say thank you for being with us. Thanks for going on the journey with me particularly. We'll be back next week, next Monday, our new day, uh, and do it all again. And quickly, I mentioned earlier, I want to reemphasize it, that there is somebody on Facebook who, if he doesn't change his or her ways, is heading for the eighth circle of hell, as I mentioned, <laughs> that is impersonating uh, Bishop Strickland on Facebook and soliciting funds. He's, he's pretending to be Bishop Strickland and asking for money to support his ministry. Now, that is, it's a fake, and Bishop Strickland has gone on to Twitter to point out that not only is that a fake Facebook account, but that he doesn't even have a Facebook account. So please don't be taken in by this. It is a scam, okay? Bishop Strickland is not on Facebook asking for money. That is somebody who is impersonating him, and uh, hopefully will be stopped soon before uh, anybody. I hope, no, hope nobody has been taken in by it. Uh, also, the Spiritual Warfare Conference, our big annual event coming up in March, the registration is now closed. And I've been talking about this for months, that you need to get on uh, the website or go call the office and make your reservations because it does fill up. And even though we added seats, uh, got a little larger venue, they allowed us to move into the main body of the church from the hall. Uh, we still, it did fill up. Registration is now closed. But you can still get the live stream. So you can still watch it live as it happens on the internet. All you need to do is go to virginmostpowerful.org uh, or visit the, or rather call the office at our toll-free number, and you can get all that on the website and uh, and get yourself on the live stream if you can't uh, be there in person. Also, uh, just quickly before uh, we go, it's a minute or so left, I wanted to um, tell you that we are very, very grateful for all your prayers and sacrifices. I know that there are people that are praying for us because we couldn't do it uh, if you weren't. And also to say that we do appreciate your prayers um, most of all, but that we also need um, physical, monetary support, financial support here at Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Keep the, the light bill, you know, paid and uh, keep our equipment working. This is, you know, it's we make it available free, but it isn't free to produce. So any help that you can give us in that regard is gratefully appreciated. And know that we're praying for you every day at the Sacred Heart Chapel here in Covina. And I guess that's it. So thanks for listening. And may God richly bless you and your family. See you next time.